Alpha. Today is an episode 106, and we have a very special guest on. Uh, his name is Austin Ye. Uh, he's a 25-year-old real estate investor from Toronto, uh, Ontario. He started investing in real estate two years ago after he read the, you know, the famous book Rich Dad Poor Dad, and came to the realization that he did not want to grind through the rat race for the rest of his life. Uh, started off with only 40,000 uh, Canadian dollars. Austin has successfully scaled to over 20 cash flowing rental properties, all while working a full-time finance job at Canada's largest bank. And you can become part of his journey and uh, follow him at uh, on Instagram, AustinYe6. Of course, that's, that is gonna be uh, in the comments uh, down below. So make sure to do that. The websites, social medias, everything, make sure to you know, uh, get in contact with Austin, but, uh, really appreciate you joining me today, Austin. It's Thank be you so much for having me on. I'm excited. That's no problem. We're happy to connect. So, uh, listen again, 25 years old still, right. That's a uh, updated. Yeah. Model. Yeah. Still 25. <laughs> got it. Got it. So can you, can you take us, uh, the time, uh, you know, two years ago when you were 23, you, you, you came across the book, rich that poor that, and you kind of realized that you want to do this rat race and kind of just, you know, nine to five, and that, that's that's what it is, you know, to life, and you discovered that there is more. Uh, so can you talk about that process? I mean, who handed you the book, and why have you realized that, that you need to invest in, in real estate in particular? Yeah, no, absolutely. So, I mean, I'll backtrack a little bit and get to that point of how I arrived across the book. So essentially, um, ever since I was growing up, my family was just very frugal, right? Blue-collar laborers, working warehouse jobs, so your typical kind of minimum wage workers. And uh, I learned the concept of frugality through them, right? So as I was going through school, I was like, I want to work a career where I make a lot, a lot of money, like a dentist or a doctor. So that's what I was fixated on. And uh, I mean, going into high school, I didn't like any of the sciences, um, but I took my first business course and I fell absolutely in love with it. And also business is much easier than the sciences. So I jumped in there, did fairly well and went into university and specialized into business. Um, and from there, I worked my first internship, professional internship. And I was like, I can't do this. Maybe it's just this particular job. I was working in audit at uh, one of the big four um, audit companies. And I was like, I, I, I don't really enjoy what I'm doing here. So let me try another job. So I worked another internship and that was at Deloitte for consulting. Didn't enjoy that. So I tried another internship and uh, that was the Hydro One. So a utility provider here in uh, Ontario and Canada. And I didn't like that job. I was working in strategy and business. And I just thought to myself, man, like, is it just me? Like, is it something like I'm just trying to find out what career path I want to go down in business? Um, so then I came across my full-time job. It's at the Royal Bank of Canada. So the largest bank in Canada. And when I started that job, I was like, I can't, I can't work this full-time rat race for the rest of my life. It's not the particular jobs that were upsetting to me. It's more so the concept of office politics. You need to kiss up to climb the corporate ladder. Um, you, you know, the entire rat race, like all of the politics involved with it, waking up early, commuting down for an hour. And I was just getting super fed up. And during that time, I was trying to trade stocks, but I lost money while trading because um, I'm a very emotional trader, I guess. And, you know, I do a, the exact opposite of whatever Warren Buffett tells me. Um, and I decided I was just talking to my buddy and I was telling him, look, I'm looking to invest. I don't know what to invest in, what asset class I need to just buckle down and and work on, I guess, building my skill set in one of them. And that's when he recommended me to read the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Uh, he was my three and he had one investment property. 
And for me, that was phenomenal. So I picked up that book. I read through it and man, it was a huge mindset shift. I can't say the technicals in that book, like you don't learn how to invest in that book particularly, but your mindset entirely shifts as to understand what are the differences between assets and liabilities, assets being things that put in your money, put, sorry, money in your pocket every single month, liabilities being anything that takes money out of your pocket every single month. And I was just thinking, I'm going to invest enough assets to generate enough income so then I can retire. And uh, that pretty much got me kickstarted on my journey to buy my first investment property. Got it, got it. Okay, so that's that's quite a journey, you know, so far. I mean, from, you know, working nine to five, trying to trade stocks, you, you did the day trading thing, right? Yeah, day trading, swing trading, Lord knows what I do. I don't even know what I was trying to do. <laughs> Just yeah. trying to make some money. Yeah, well, it makes sense. So like, what other options have you looked at? Because I mean, in this day and age, there's a lot of different options, you know, people talking about, you know, Amazon, like dropshipping and, you know, doing some sort of an internet type of business. So what, like, what other options are you, have you looked before you kind of decided I need to get involved with real estate? Yeah, really, it was just between really equities, dividend paying stocks. Um, so that falls under equities or real estate. Those are the really two biggest options that I was looking at, because those are the most, um, I guess publicly invested asset classes, right? With stuff like drop shipping, so on and so forth. I considered that more of a business. Mm -hmm. uh, real estate has eventually evolved into a business for me, but when I got into it, I just thought of it solely kind of as an investment vehicle. Um, but yeah, I mean, the reasons why I liked real estate more than um, stocks, uh, for me particularly, one of them, obviously a lot of people talk about it, is leverage, right? So mm -hmm. um, you're not going to be able to leverage such cheap debt uh, in the stock market, the interest rates on, on margin trading are much higher than the, the interest rates on buying a hard, tangible asset, right? So uh, in Ontario and Canada right now, I'm, my latest mortgage was 1.7% on a 30-year amortization. You have to earn greater than a 1.7% return, just greater than that, which is super easy for me to collect the spread on my money. Um, and another big thing was is that stocks, you can't really control what goes on in the stocks, right? For example, if Elon must tweet something stupid, then you're going to see Tesla's uh, stock price plummet uh, a bit. And we've seen that before. Um, but instead, real estate, the asset class is, is pretty sticky, right? And the big thing is, is that if property prices drop, I could care less if they drop because I'm cash flowing, right? So I'm, as long as I can hold on to this asset for the long term, uh, the fluctuations in, in property prices doesn't matter to me. And of course, like the income is the very appealing part for me in real estate and being able to control the tenants I've been put in there, being able to control how much I can lift the value of the property up with, I'm a control freak. So um, I, I gravitated towards the real estate asset class. Yeah, it makes sense. Definitely. And, and when you talk about, again, it, it sounds like you're a long-term investor at the same time. So like one of the disadvantages, maybe for people who are listening, when you invest in real estate, that it's not liquid, like you, you cannot take the equity, you cannot take the money out as in a stock market, just like today or tomorrow. So you still have to, you know, hold it in, in the house and, and like in equities, you know, and until you sell it, then, you know, it, it goes through the, through the entire process. But exactly. uh, again, your personal, you know, kind of educational part, I would love to discuss that because I'm sure you didn't end up with the Rich Dad Poor Dad, the only single book and it went from there. Can you talk about like what type of resources have you consumed to make sure that you're like well-educated uh, with real estate investing? Yeah, absolutely. So what's hilarious, actually, when I jumped in my first property, 
the resources I used to get in my first property was not that much. It was Rich Dad Poor Dad, which again, we said that um, from a technical point of view, there's, there's not much you can pull out of it. And maybe it was one or two YouTube videos. And I was like, all right, let me just buy my first property. And that was, uh, nice. my first property was a complete mess. So I can tell you the way, the avenues that I learned. Sure. Um, the first, the most, uh, I guess, costly avenue that I learned, but it resonated with me the most. The lessons were making my own mistakes to the first property, right? So I worked with the first real estate agent I ever met or spoke to, which obviously you want to speak, uh, you want to work with an investor oriented agent, real estate investors who help, I mean, real estate agents who help other investors buy properties. So this agent has never worked with an investor contractor. I work with the first contractor I ever spoke to as well. And here in Ontario, the contracting industry is notorious for kind of screwing people over, taking a high deposit, running away from the job or extending timelines. All of those kind of happened to me. Um, I underestimated my renovation cost. I um, didn't understand any of the materials or any of that that goes into construction. Um, property manager, I used the first property management company, which I ended up firing. So these are mistakes I learned myself. And obviously by making these mistakes, I, I, I told myself, I'm never going to do it again. Um, and there were, there were hard truths, right? Um, so that was one avenue that I'll learn going through my first property. But in order to better prepare yourself, I, I, I encourage everyone uh, to do a couple of things. First thing is, is that find a local meetup or community uh, in that area that you want to invest in. So it's super easy for me. Like if I'm, I'm investing in Windsor, Ontario, um, even though I'm from Toronto, Ontario. And what I do is I go on Facebook, I search Windsor real estate, and then there's a bunch of little uh, community or meetup groups. You join, you connect with other local investors and you educate yourself on the local market. Um, second thing I would do is, is that I'd watch YouTube videos for us, like millennials. It's, it's very easy to access information, right? Um, mm -hmm. there, if, if there's a problem that you're running across 99% chance is probably someone who made a YouTube video on it. Yeah. Um, so real estate, if you're a visual learner, definitely get on YouTube, find real estate investors, um, probably local, at least to your country, um, who have YouTube channels. Cause I'm pretty sure every country they'll have like a YouTube entrepreneur. And if there's not, you should start doing it. Cause that's a great way to brand yourself. Right. Um, and also read books. So the big book that I recommend, um, it's really more North American based, but I think it should apply to any country really is, is it's the book on investing in rental properties. And it's written by Brandon Turner mm -hmm. of bigger pockets. So bigger pockets is a huge investing community out here in North America. Um, but yeah, as long as you read books, you also, of course, listen to podcasts like Beating Alpha. <laughs> That's a great way to pick up on information um, from other experienced real estate investors. I was looking, you have some crazy guests over here. Um, so you can extract information from podcasts, making your own mistakes, um, from reading books, like such as the one that I suggested, um, YouTube videos, and, and obviously you can work for free for someone. If you find a mentor, um, I, at the beginning couldn't trade any money for time. Cause I didn't have much money. All my money was tied in kind of my first property. Um, and I wanted to get mentorship. So I went to someone who had 60 properties and I told him I'll work for you completely for free while working at RBC, my full-time job. So pretty much every afternoon, um, I would communicate with him. I would do work for him for free every weekend. I would literally stay over his house. So I barely saw my girlfriend and I did that for three or four months straight every weekend going over there. Um, there was even a day. I remember a weekday, I was staying up until 4am to help him do his taxes. And then I went to work in the next day at 7am. Right. So it's all about hustling and grinding. If you don't have the money to pay for a coach, you got to give them your time. 
but uh, a long-winded answer, but there are so many different ways to learn. Um, people kind of struggle to figure out like which way to go, but uh, best way that I could recommend is for me personally, books help the most because again, uh, if you go to school, we're kind of taught to learn uh, from the textbook, from beginning, middle, and then building up the concepts from there. Um, you're probably going to get a similar situation when reading books where they give you the fundamentals and build up on that. Got it. Got it. Oh, yeah, definitely. There are so many different uh, free kind of resources available free or either, you know, like $10, you know, like a book that you mentioned, Brandon Turner book, I'm sure it's it's dear cheap, you know, so like so many different sources are available for people to consume right now and, and educate themselves. But I love the fact that you kind of, you know, you already reached out for that, you watched a couple of videos and it was like, I'm ready to, to rock and roll and kind of invest into, you know, into real estate, which is awesome it's all about taking action at the end of the day right so can you talk about your personal deals because you mentioned you're investing in windsor uh canada like i'm not from there I, I don't have a clue i mean why have you decided to invest in windsor instead of toronto is that a big like driving distance for you yeah yeah so i'll actually walk you through that so when i started investing after reading rich dad poor dad i had about forty thousand dollars canadian saved um average home price in toronto at least now it's almost a million dollars. So let's be real, $40,000 cannot buy anything in Toronto, not even a parking spot. Parking spots go for $100,000. So um, I knew that this was not feasible to stay within my area. And a big thing is, is that um, if I was to sit around and just save my money until I can afford a down payment in Toronto, I wouldn't be able to break into real estate until at least five years, right? Saving that amount of down payment would be insane. Um, so what I did instead was I looked at smaller cities. Uh, the big thing is, is that when you're investing in big cities, you're investing for appreciation because they're cash flow negative. Uh, for those who don't know what cash flow negative is, essentially on a high level, if your rents don't cover all of your expenses, including your property taxes, insurance, including your utilities, your mortgage payment, um, and even like repairs, right? I know some people don't like to allocate repairs. I allocate repairs every single month, regardless if they happen or not just in case, because I know eventually will happen. So how, and I make how, sure it's cash. Sorry. And how big of a percent is that from a gross? Oh yeah. So for me, for repairs and vacancy, I allocate 10% in total. So you could say five, five each. Um, but yeah, so I allocate about 10% of my rental income to vacancy and repairs every single month, because it might not happen one month, but it would probably end up happening maybe a year or two years, three years down. And you need to make sure you have the money for that. Um, after all of that, these large metropolitan uh, politan cities, they're not cash flowing. They're, they're appreciation please. So what I did was I looked for markets that I could afford with $40,000. So I like to tell when people ask me what market to invest in, um, it's usually younger people around 20 to, to, to 27, right? So they don't have too, too much money saved. And I asked them, I was like, okay, so how much money do you have saved? They tell me, it's like, how much are you willing to invest out of that? If they say all of it, most people, they usually say 50 or 60 grand. Um, and then I ask them how much are they making from their full-time job? Because that's going to determine how much they can qualify for in terms of a mortgage, right? Um, if they're making in Ontario, if they're making less than hundred K forget about even investing in Toronto, you're not going to be able to hold a mortgage yourself. Um, so those are the two things that are going to determine what market you invest in one, how much money you have to what your mortgage is, because um, if you're limited on both, don't even talk to me about those big cities because you're not, you don't have the money or the financials to support that. For me, I knew what my criteria was 40 K could hold about 300 K in the mortgage. So I had to drive four hours out 
the only city I could afford was Windsor, Ontario, right? Um, relatively blue collar city, a lot of factory workers. So um, there, it is growing in terms of uh, getting getting new industries and employers involved in there. Um, but for me, my primary focus was cash flow. And in every city, even even cities that are not as desirable, there are pockets of areas of um, of good locations within that city. Um, so for example, where I live in Toronto, there's an area called Jane and Finch. Everyone will generalize Toronto as a great market, but there's an area called Jane and Finch, which is terrible area. And no one would want to invest there. Not many people, right? So it's, you can't make generalizations. So people would generalize the city of Windsor as being blue collar. Um, yeah, but there are pockets of areas in that city that are always going to be desirable to locals. So those are the areas that I invest in because regardless if there's a recession or people leaving those areas to the locals will always still be desirable versus like some of the the worst pockets of that neighborhood um but yeah really i just chose the market based on my qualifications and based on knowing that i want cash flow and i kind of took action right i didn't care if it was four hours away because a big thing you're going to realize in real estate investing and in business is is you're not doing everything yourself right um Big example that I like to give is, is that the, the the CEO of Microsoft, he's not going down to Canada or to the US to help these analysts do their day-to-day -day work. He's managing the big out operations, right? And that's what you're eventually going to be when you invest in real estate. You manage the big operations. You hire the small things out to property managers, to contractors. Um, you don't want to do those hands-on stuff because that's not where your time is most valued. Your time is valued in closing deals, finding undervalued properties, um, raising capital. Uh, so really that four hour distance allowed me to force myself to build a power team out there in Windsor. Got it, got it. So can we go kind of the deal criteria that you're actually looking forward to buy? Like what type of properties are we talking about? Yeah, yeah. So uh, properties, the properties I own range from, from, from single family student rentals down to small multis of four four plexes around there. Um, criteria is a bit different for each one. So for single families, what I like to do is my priority and strategy is buying an undervalued property, renovating it, then refinancing any of the money I put into the property. So I pull that money out and I can buy another property with that money, which is how I was able to scale. So my, my main criteria, number one, is leaving a minimum amount of money in the property. So if I buy the property for a hundred thousand, I put in 20,000 in renovations, for example, I want the property value to be like 170, 180,000, right? So I can refinance all my money out of the deal, take that and buy another property. So that's criteria. Number one is making sure I have minimum capital invested after refinancing criteria. Number two is cash flow criteria, right? So for my single family homes in Windsor, again, it's market to market. It's a bit different. Actually, you know what? I'll state it on cash on cash return because that's a more universal metric. So guys, if you don't know what cash on cash return is, it's essentially what's your yearly cash flow. So what's my cash flow I get every single year, right? Divided by how much money I put into the property. So in other words, how much for every dollar I invest in this property, how much money is this property paying me back, right? So my, my, cash, my cash on cash return target uh, in Windsor, Ontario, it's about 25 to 30%. So for every dollar I invest, I want 30 cents in return back, right? Um, that's what I'm kind of looking at. Uh, and bigger multifamilies, I'm okay with leaving obviously a little bit more money on the table. But again, from a cash on cash return perspective, I'd like to see at least 25 or 30%. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of what I've been going off of. Again, like for me, I'm a cash flow investor. So equity pay down, it's nice. I'm always going to get it regardless. Appreciation, I honestly could care less about appreciation it's a nice cherry on top for me um but for me again like 
for me to retire, if you guys are investing in real estate to retire, what you're going to find is cash flow matters much more than equity, right? How many people in Toronto do I know that have a million dollars in equity in their house, but they can't make that equity work for them. They can't use that equity to generate them a dime in revenue, right? Because they're not savvy investors. For me, if you give me a million dollars in equity, I'd retire myself in a year, year and a half, right? I'd deploy it all. Um, like again, let's do the cash on cash return formula. I deploy a million dollars, 30% of that becomes revenue. So I would be generating myself 300K in yearly revenue uh, perpetually, right? By buying investment properties with that. So uh, yeah, I've always been a cash flow targeted investors, which is why I, you'll, you'll hear me talk about the cash on cash return. Yeah, yeah, that is awesome. That is really cool. So yeah, that's the difference. That's the main difference investing in uh, Windsor rather than Toronto is for cash flow, not appreciation. Exactly. So, so again, talking about the current deals, I mean, what do you have in the pipeline and what you're looking for at this current moment? Is it the single family years or all multifamily? Yeah, no, I do everything, right? Uh, with single families, I, I prefer it to be student rentals because it's higher yields here in Canada. Um, because with student rentals, we rent it by the bedroom. So uh, each bedroom we're rented out for around 600 to 650 bucks. Um, and you're buying the house for like 300K, right? So student rentals, it's all about maximizing the amount of bedrooms in the house. The more bedrooms you have, more students you can fit in, the higher your, uh, your yield or your rental income. Um, so when single families, again, student rentals, because high cash flow, high yields. Uh, with multifamilies, I like to look for around fourplexes. Ideally, I want to operate within the four to six range. Uh, and that being, this is more Canadian specific as well, is, is that once you go above six units, you need to go commercial finance and 30% down. I just want to take advantage of putting only 20% down here in Canada. So the maximum I'm buying up to six units. And again, that's what I feel comfortable in. I also know my limitations, right? I'm four hours away. I'm working a full-time job. I don't think I can buy like a 10 unit and make it work out as quickly as I would like to just because I'm limited on resources and time, right? Um, so also like I, I hear a lot of, uh, people wanting to buy the big, big multifamilies. And realistically, if you're working a nine to five, like me, that requires you to work in a corporate environment and stuff, um, those properties, like you're, you're going to have a little less time to allocate because a lot of those properties, you're going to have to have tenant turnover, then renovate each unit. And here in Ontario, it's almost impossible to turn over tenants. Like the, the rules are so in favor of the tenants. Um, so when I buy multifamilies, I like to have a couple of units vacant so if it's a fourplex at least one or two of the units vacant and i try to get the other two units vacant by offering them cash incentives so i'll go up to them and be like hey do you guys want four thousand dollars now i uh, just signed this paper and this is based papers agreeing that you leave in three months right and i'll give you four grand they sign it and i give them four grand in cash right in front of them so i show them the money right in front of them because it's a psychological game right mm-hmm. um but yeah like that that's kind of what i've been looking at really student rentals uh, up to four or five plexes Got it. Got it. Okay. So again, four hours away from where you are in Toronto and you're investing in Windsor. So any tips for somebody who's watching, how do you hire the the right property manager to to make sure that, you know, that person is going to take care of the property as well? Yeah, no, absolutely. So in in, in terms of investing long distance, the biggest worry people get is, is that I don't want to drive down there if it comes down to it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, really it's all about, it's all about hiring the right people. Um, let's say you run your own business and you have an employee, right? And your employee is like your, your best friend, right? Uh, and he's a killer employee, like great. And he comes to you and says, yo, I have another buddy that you might want to hire. He's just as good as me. You're going to take his word for it because it's coming from a trusted person 
And obviously you trust their word. So you hire that other person, right? And that's how it's like investing long distance. You got to take the word of experienced investors. So this is kind of the order I would like to say it is, is that when you're looking to invest long distance in a particular area, find a local investor meetup group first. That's your number one. If you can't do that, I would, I would try to find another area to invest in. Cause if you cannot invest with locals, um, you have no boots on the ground there and you need some boots on the ground. So, um, for me, I was able to find it on Facebook, Windsor and meetup.com, which is more American, um, Canadian. But if there is one, uh, in, in another country, um, there's probably something similar to a meetup.com. You can find all of the groups and organizations and community. Um, so I want to meet up.com. I searched Windsor real estate, joined all of those local communities, right? Now you're in touch with all of the investors. Now you post on the group, you engage with them. Hey guys, I'm a relatively new investor. So I live four hours off. Uh, do you have time to jump on a zoom call, jump on a zoom call with them and then inquire, ask them like, what are they seeing in the real estate market? Ask them which property management are they using? Right. Um, ask them what contractors are they using any recommendations any advice connect with all of these investors right and when you connect with these investors now you have like a list of different contractors different property managers now interview them call these property managers call these contractors i'd ask the contractors have you do you know how to use whatsapp or or, or facebook messenger if they say no i'm not working with them because how are they going to send me updates of videos and photos because i'm long distance i don't want to be down back and forth so you guys need to know how to use technology right? That's rule number one. Um, rule number two is have you ever worked with a long distance investor, especially contractors, property managers, most definitely they probably have, um, but contractors in specific, um, if they haven't worked with long distance investors, I'm not, your, I'm not going to be your guinea pig. So forget it, right? Like I want people with experience. And the only way you leverage these people is by leveraging your connection of the other investors. Cause again, like, like going back to that analogy, when you make, when you hire someone, a recommendation from someone that, you know, is well-trusted, goes a lot, uh, goes a long way. You're probably going to hire that person, right? Cause it's a trusted recommendation. Similar thing in real estate. If you trust an investor, build relationships, see experienced investors operate and they refer you to someone, you take that with more weight because they are being used in their business. So why can't they be being used in your business? But big thing is make sure that at least they've, they've operated with long distance investors, right? Cause you don't want to be the Guinea pig and, and go through a nightmare like I did with my contractor. Got it, got it. Well, that, that's a super great tip, and I really appreciate you sharing that. I think it's going to bring a tremendous value for people who are looking to invest uh, long distance. Question that I have for you again, uh, coming back to that long long distance investing, you know, part. Uh, how were you able to source these type of deals? Was it through brokers or by using any other creative strategies? Yeah, absolutely. So the deal hunting is a question I get a lot because it's funny. Um, being out in Toronto, I find that sometimes I get more deals than the people local on that market, right? So there are a couple of things to that. Um, first thing I wanna get across is branding. Um, you need to definitely brand yourself. So for me, um, how we actually connected was through social media, right? Um, so I brand myself quite heavily out in social media, saying that I invest in Windsor. Um, here's my project, here's another project. I'm working with investors. I'm always looking to buy deals, right? So automatically I'm top of mind for a lot of people, even people I've never spoken to in my entire life. So I knew someone who reached out to me. Um, well, actually I didn't even know them. They just reached out to me and they're just like, Hey Austin, you're looking to buy properties in Windsor I said, yes, I am. And they said that, yeah, my uncle's actually looking to sell. Boom. We got an off market deal just like that. Right. And that was just through branding and building a credibility for yourself. And a lot of people will say again, like I don't have any properties. So how am I going to brand? That's totally fine. When I started branding, I had zero properties. I just documented my journey. Like 
Hey, I'm at this event today. I'm at this mastermind. I just spent $5,000 on coaching. I just did this. I just did that. Right. People want to follow the journey and follow the hustle. Mm -hmm. One thing that you have that a lot of people don't have is the journey because you're starting from square one and recording and documenting everything. That's rule number one branding. And you'll have people reach out to you because you'll be top of mind. Uh, another thing that I do is, is that in terms of the off market portion. So in Canada, we have a website called Kijiji. Um, us it's craigslist i don't know if there's in different mm -hmm. countries like what it is but it's basically like a marketplace where people just post stuff online um, and i just search for sale by owner i check it two or three times a day right um, a lot of the times you'll see a lot of mls or public listings um, but there are some times in between there you would see an actual true authentic for sale by owner and those are a couple of deals that i snipe up i want to say i got three or four deals through that method and uh, another big thing I do, and this is something that people don't do enough. I actually don't know too many people who do this. And sometimes I'm guilty of even slacking on it is, is that you need to make phone calls to anyone who touches, sees and smells real estate. And what I mean by that is, is that in Windsor. So if I go on Google, I will search Windsor pest control. I will call each one of those pest control companies and say, Hey, how's it going? I'm an investor out in Toronto. I have X amount of properties down at Windsor. Um, yeah, I know some of them, I, I like to kind of make it seem like I'm interested in their business first, just to create a relationship. Yeah. I'm interested in your pest services. Can I hear more about it? Blah, 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 blah. At the end of the phone call drop in. Hey, by the way, I'm always looking to buy properties. I know sometimes you probably run across properties with a lot of pest issues. If you think the owner is even considering to sell privately, I will buy a house in any condition, any condition whatsoever in cash. Um, so if you can pass on my contact information or pass on their contact information to me, if I end up closing on that deal, I'm going to give you a thousand dollars, right? I'm, I do that with five pest control companies out in Windsor. I do that with every property management property management. I'll be like, Hey, if you have any disgruntled landlords who are tired of dealing with their shitty tenants or whatever, um, you know, like just, I, I'll, I'll step in. Right. And just give me, just give the contact information to the interested, um, seller. And if we get a private deal done, I'll swing you a thousand dollars. I do that with landscaping, right? Some landscaping companies might be like, oh, yo, this, this person doesn't take care of the grass, there's beer bottles, this and that. Here's the address. Here's the owner's address. Contact them. If I close, I'll give you a thousand dollars. Who else? And home inspectors. Home inspectors probably see deals that fall through. Like, you know how someone buys a house, they walk through it and the home inspector's like, this is wrong with it. The home sell, the buyer might pull out. It's like, I don't want it. I don't want to deal with these problems. Well, the home inspector knows that deal fell through. Now who can pass that lead on to you, right? Um, but yeah, like all, like just just again, long story short, contact anyone who touches, sees, and smells real estate on a daily basis. Because if you do that, if you make one phone call a day, you're making 365 phone calls a year, you have 365 people looking out for deals for you, you are going to get at least one or two deals during that year. But it's all a numbers and hustle game, right? Exactly, exactly. That, that is really cool. Like, I love, I love the fact that you just shared all these creative strategies, talking with these different, different people, which is awesome. We, it's, a, it's a really great strategy and a, and a great point. That, and I think it will be really valuable for people who are going to take action, of course, onto that. And, and of course, exactly. And the perfect thing is, is that even it doesn't matter where you're located, right? You're just, yeah, it's just phone exactly. calls is all, is all it is. Yeah. Oh, eventually it's going to happen. I mean, if, if you're doing that consistently, it, like you said, 365 days a year, like you, you're going to find something, you know, exactly. Find something. Exactly. I, again, I know it's going to be kind of a little bit jumping from the, from the topic. And of course we're going to come back in a second, but uh, like, I just want to ask, because I know there is a lot of people, and especially during these times, 
they're thinking like maybe the final, you know, you know, finding the money for, for these deals, at least for the down payment could be an issue. So can you talk about your process of how did you came up with this 40 K in savings? Because a lot of people, they know like, Oh, I need, I do need to be frugal, but that's all it is. Like what type of strategies have you used to make sure that you can come up like and save this, this amount of money? Yeah. I mean, I'll be honest with you. Mine's is uh, it, it pretty boring. It, 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 it does revolve a lot about frugality. So, um, I mean, it's hard for people to replicate because I've been doing this since I was young. I was telling you that uh, my parents are very frugal in nature. So by a byproduct of that, every Christmas money, Chinese New Year money, every birthday money, it was taken aside and to put in a bank account. And I never got the credit card or the debit card until high school. So I had eight years of saving or not until high school, until university. So I had, uh, I had years and years of saving and throughout high school, I worked summer jobs, like literally every summer, full-time 40 hours a week, every summer from grade nine to grade 12, I worked a full-time job during summers. Um, and I saved that way. And then university, I got a scholarship internship. I saved every, almost every, almost everything I can. Right. So how, like, if I was to answer the question, like, how do you go about saving money to get into real estate investing? I want to present a couple of, I guess, challenges to that. Oh, not challenges. There are a couple of rebuttals to that, right? The first thing is, is that, yeah, I mean, the slowest way but is to, is to go through the frugality route, but that's probably the most essential way because when you go in real estate, you're going to get used to feeling like you have money and going broke because you're always taking money, putting it out, refinancing, taking money, putting it out. So like it always goes, your bank account goes up and down. So you got to get used to being frugal. Frugality is number one, because I can tell you right now, uh, earning more money, uh, that would be number two, but earning more money is significantly more harder than saving money. Okay. Uh, earning, like think about getting a, a, a promotion at your job just to get a five or, or six or 7% raise. It takes two or three years of hustling and grinding just to earn six or 7%. Well, I would like to say if you just save six to 7% more a year, if you just work on saving, that's more controllable and that's much more easier than trying to get a raise in the job, right? So first thing is saving more because saving is the easiest thing you can do immediately to boost your bottom line, right? Then earning more. So taking on side hustles, like doing Uber Eats, um, um, like uh, working part-time at another company, it's just really grinding it out and getting that down payment and that savings there, right? Another thing is lines of credit, okay? So here's a tip is, is that, and this is not advice, right? This is just uh, kind of what I've, I've seen and kind of what I've done myself as well, because uh, it is high risk, is, is that uh, in, here in Canada, we can get unsecured lines of credit, okay? I'm pretty sure it's the same around the world. You can get an unsecured line of credit. Uh, essentially... I get a line of credit with every single bank, unsecured line of credit. Yes, it does temporarily blip your credit score, but ultimately like your credit score is really fickle anyways. It goes ups and downs. So if your credit score is consistently high and you apply to all these lines of credit, short-term blip, but it's it's for long-term gain, right? So all of these lines of credit, uh, you kind of build it up. So now, even if you have money for down payment and you don't have money for rentals, you can fund those rentals through your lines of credit, right? And then uh, you can refinance that property after you build value in it through renovations and pay down all your lines of credits. And I've done this before, right? I've had money for the down payment, $0 for renovation. I pulled everything from unsecured high interest lines of credit, right? But again, this is because I'm more experienced, right? And then I refinanced it, refinanced the property, paid all of my lines of credit down, took about my down payment. So I'm in for $0, right? And I made this deal happen, even though I didn't have enough money because I borrowed money from the bank technically. Um, so lines of credit is, a sec, uh, is another alternative. Um, but a big thing I do want to do want to put out there is, is that if you have half of the money and your friend or family has another half of the money, maybe try to partner with them, 
right? A lot of people are trying to focus on saving everything themselves and they're getting worried because they're seeing real estate prices go up, 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 right? And they're thinking to themselves, how am I ever going to go in? Um, well, if you partner with someone, now you need half of the savings, right? Now you need, technically you can put in half of the effort. You can, you can spend a bit more, you can save a bit less, uh, although I don't recommend it. Um, and because now you're splitting the initial capital with two people, you can even go as far as partnering with three people who are interested in real estate with you, right? Um, but you don't feel the need that you need to do it with yourself. If there's an opportunity that makes sense to partner with someone, right? To go half, half with someone, then definitely explore down that route. Cause it can get you in the market quicker. Um, but yeah, if you want to do it yourself, really, you got to just work on saving and earning more in my opinion. It's all comes down to that frugality, you know, because we as millennials, well, we sometimes, you know, chase those shiny objects, whatever that might be new, you know, new phone coming up, new computer, or there's something brand new thing. And I have to have it. So, so yeah. it's building that kind of habit of, of being frugal. So it's not second nature for a lot of people. <laughs> say that again. It's not second nature for a lot oh, of people. It's, it's tough. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's, it, it takes, it takes some time and, and, and you know, struggles to, to build that as everything in life that is good, you know, everything takes time. But mm -hmm. like, I wanted to ask you again, cause you mentioned about the, you have some of the multifamily deals that are kind of student tenants and I'm sure maybe you have family, single people. So can you talk about how do you go about with your tenant screening process? Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, for me, again, like what I like to do as kind of, I guess, a business owner at this point, because I raise capital and invest it is, is that um, I allocate things to the experts, right? Mm -hmm. um, the people that I trust. So I spend more time betting out the property manager and seeing if I, I seeing if they're going to put a focus on me and my portfolio, what they're already managing. So I spend time betting out the property manager. And I let the property manager do the day-to-day -day, um, betting of the different tenants, right? And then they give me final say. So that's kind of mm -hmm. how I'm operating it, by the way. So I'm not looking at every application because again, that is a $20 an hour job. You want to focus on making $1,000 per hour revenue driving <laughs> income streams, right? Which is raising capital, finding good deals. So um, for me, the final say, the things that I always like to see is how much money did I have saved in the bank account? This is important now during COVID. Before um, it, it was a little bit more lenient, but during COVID, the issue is, is that if you go through another shutdown here in Ontario, and a lot of these people are not working again, right, which we are kind of getting to that point in here in Ontario, is, is that I need to make sure they have savings so they can still pay rent, or at least pay a portion of rent, right, and they totally decide not to, to stop paying at all. Um, so savings matters a lot, credit score. Um, again, like I kind of like to see the credit history as well. I'm okay with a lower credit score if it had, if it makes sense. If maybe four years ago or five years ago, they went bankrupt. But ever since then, their credit has been absolutely perfect. I can see through those things, right? Um, but just analyzing their credit score and digging deeper into seeing why it's that particular score. Did they do anything recent to kind of screw it up? Because if so, that gives red flags. Another thing is co-signer. Um, I like to always get a co-signer whenever possible. And the reason being is because if you can't give me a co-signer, what are you telling me? It's a red flag, right? If you can, if your own parents or your family or your friends or you, no one's going to co-sign for you within reason, right? Then um, it screams like, uh, I mean, your own inner circle is not trusting you for whatever reason to pay your rent on time. So why am I going to trust you to pay me um, rent on time, right? And the last thing that I like to do as well, and uh, I mean, I put this out on the table because you can't necessarily ask your tenants for this, but uh, during when I have multiple walkthroughs, I will let them know that, hey, I have multiple interested tenants who are going to be applying. Um, one thing that will decide on the factor is, is that 
who is going to put more money down? Like, and you know how people do first and last, but I had tenants who gave me four months, right? And that is a huge hedge during COVID, right? Because if the tenants just stop paying, at least you've collected four months rent, right? Up front. So it, it, it is a huge hedge and it's comforting to know because it also tells me that they're going to stay here long-term, take care of the place. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's all of these small things, but really the day-to-day screening up tenants i don't deal with that again because it's 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 really not worth my time right like i i hired that to an expert yeah yeah again again, some some more creative strategies which is awesome i I mean i love the fact you're coming up like you're a pretty creative guy and you're coming up i'm sure you you learn you know a lot again books uh, meetups like all the different like youtube sources and podcasts or Mm -hmm. whatever but like like i love the fact that you're going about being creative and and you know like finding, you know, what it's really difficult sometimes, you know, to onboard and, you know, collect the rent payments during this time. So that, that is really cool. So you, talk, you, you talked about the raising capital part. So what are you going to be raising capital for? Can you talk about that process? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. So um, this actually will kind of, I guess, answer that question that you had earlier as well. What if you can't save 40K, 50K or whatever, buy your mm-hmm. first property? Another alternative, it's a bit harder when you're starting off, but what I'm doing now is I'm raising capital. So essentially what, what I mean by that is, is that kind of I have, I've been documenting my entire journey on social media. Um, I've been, I've been hosting events out here in Toronto, uh, like little meetups for real estate investors, just to chat, meet with each other. And by doing all of that, I was able to build credibility for myself in my local market, right? Uh, it's all about using that credibility to see how you can leverage that to your business. So uh, ultimately, by doing all this branding, people started to trust me. And a lot of people are similar in my situation where they want to invest uh, when I was starting off, where they wanted to invest in real estate, but they don't know too much about it. Uh, but with, with these people, they have a higher risk tolerance they have a lower risk tolerance so they want to invest with someone who's experienced right so what the proposition i do is is that they essentially provide me 100 of the capital so i'm putting no money in these deals now right so if the project for renovations down payment are a hundred thousand they'll give me a hundred thousand dollars in cash right um they will hold the mortgage so i'm not even using my own borrowing capacity anymore right and in exchange what i do is that i do all of the work to the property so i source the off-market undervalued deal i renovate it and i refinance the money so let's say they have a hundred thousand dollars in the property right they gave it to me and i i we deployed a hundred thousand if i refinance out eighty thousand in four or five months right after renovating it and bring value to the house i will give them all of that eighty thousand dollars back so now they're only 20,000 in the property, right? But from that point on, now we're splitting the asset 50-50, right? Um, so that's how I've been go, going about structuring uh, my joint venture partners. And essentially what happens is at the end of the term, so it's a minimum five-year term, but let's say in five years, we want to sell the property. So remember how they were in 20,000. So they put in a hundred, they got 80 back on refinance. It's still in 20,000. At the end of the five-year term, that $20,000, it goes back to their pocket, right? So upon sale, they get all 20,000 back and then we split profits 50-50. But then the case might happen is what if the, what if, what if there's no profits? What if we just pull out 20,000 and there's no more money after that? They get all 20,000 back and I don't get paid. Let's say in five years, the property value dips. Obviously what you would do, you is just hold the rental property until like, obviously it starts picking up again, but let's say worst case scenario, property values dip and it's never going to recover. Like some, some Armageddon type of stuff happens, right? Um, when they sell it, let's say they lose 50 K. Well, I'm, I'm losing 25 K with them. I'm putting in 25 K and they're losing 25 K. Right. Uh, the only contingency, not the only, the only big thing is that they have to put the money up front and hold the mortgage. Right. But we put that all in a side contract 
obviously developed by a lawyer. So you spend a couple thousand dollars drafting that contract up. But yeah, that's how I've been going about it. That's how I've been able to scale with really no, none of my own money. It's just I'm raising capital now and I'm just providing investors comfort. Look, I'm going to earn your return on your money. Um, after we, after you break even, we're going to split everything 50, 50. Got it. Another, again, another creative strategy for, for you guys and girls to use. So, uh, are you planning to invest in other, st- in other, uh, cities beside the Windsor as well? Are you looking at something else? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of glancing at other markets for me. The reason why I like Windsor is because it does definitely take a lot of your time to build the systems and teams and reputation mm-hmm. in a particular market. Right. And I feel like I've only been investing for two years. It seems like it's been quite a long time, but it's only been two years. And, um, I think I haven't really, uh, generated the full fruits of my labor. Cause I spent like, I want to say the first year is spending perfecting all of the systems and then getting a couple mm-hmm. of investment properties. And then really now I want to, since I kind of perfected the systems, I want to, I think I'm, I'm still in the shoes to scale more. Uh, when you have a market expertise, the big thing as well is you have a huge competitive advantage and to build that market expertise in a new market, it, it takes a lot of time. But that being said, I have been exploring other markets as well um, because Windsor prices have risen by 30% year over year since I started investing. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm looking at other smaller markets that have, maybe a large, larger population, but they're kind of been the outskirts away from Toronto because uh, they cash flow much higher in those markets. But um, whatever market you're invest, uh, whatever city you're living in, even if it's a big, big city where house prices are unaffordable, I can almost guarantee, right? If you do like some research, you're going to find there's another city within a four to five hour drive that's much more affordable and cheaper that you can invest into and cash flow, right? Those are the kind of markets I've been exploring. But until then, I'm just kind of sticking around Windsor because I have all my teams down there. Okay, got it. Makes sense. So you're still going to invest in the Windsor for now. So again, a couple last questions that I have. First first question is, uh, I mean, looking at currently what you have in the pipeline, like how many more deals are you planning to close on this year? Uh, yeah, I'm actually trying to slow down a bit more because I'm working full time, right? So I know what my capacity is. I don't want to overtake or overstep my boundaries and, you know, the conflict of interest with other investors because I'm working on too many projects while working full time. Uh, I'm just trying to get one or two more projects maximum by the end of this year. And uh, for next year, probably two to three two properties a month, that's a scalable pace. But I mean, once I transition over into real estate full-time and some people might ask when that will be, um, for me, it can, if COVID didn't happen, I'd probably be in it full-time now. But since that is there, I like to stay safe, right? So I like to have that backup security of income. Um, so I'm still there temporarily. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I mean, sorry, I, I've circled around so much. I for, totally forgot what the, for, what was the question? Yeah, if you're planning to close on more, more, more. Oh yeah, yeah. So yeah. long story short, yeah. I mean, uh, a maximum one or two boundaries in the next year, probably like mm-hmm. two to three a month uh, until I quit my job. Then, got it, got it, got it. Awesome. Then we're looking. Can you hear me here? Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah, sorry, just a uh, connection here in the spirit for a second. But yeah, we, we got that. We got that answer. Okay, so the last kind of question that I have for you, and it's going to be a little bit es- esoteric one, you know, but, uh, and I don't know if, uh, if uh, I'm, 
you know, I think I'm a little bit too early in a cycle in a personal business to ask you that type of question, but hey, I'm still going to ask it. Uh, like, what is the legacy that you're looking to leave after you? Yeah, so uh, legacy for me is impact, right? Uh, I read a book by Mickey Robbins called Your Money or Your Life, and that's a personal finance book. It's all about frugality, saving, and the huge concept in that book I pulled away from it is that everything you earn money for you're trading your life energy for so while you're when you're working a full-time job you are putting x amount of your time into it to earn x amount of dollars right everything in life is a trade of life energy so what is because time is the most valuable asset right um and she mentioned in that book that the most fulfilled people feel in life based on her data her data and her research and looking into other people's research as well is is that when you drive impact to community or to someone's life that's when you feel the happiest because at the end of the day no one is going to remember that i had 20 30 40 properties when i die in my grave that doesn't mean shit to a lot of people right but what people care about is what impact have you left in their life personally so um i mean real estate is a means to an end for me so i do enjoy real estate i'm growing my portfolio yes but i'm still young um by the time i'm 20 to maybe around 30 years old i'm looking to transition into being a high school business teacher which is definitely much less paying in real estate and my, even my current job right now. And the reason is because I feel like financial literacy um, and, and true business acumen, entrepreneurship, it's not taught in, in, in high school or it's not taught to the, the amount that it should be. Right. And as a result, you have these kids that are unfrugal spending every dollar they make during investing, not considering retiring. Right. I want to instill to these kids is like, look, I've done really well in school. I've been where you're at. I've done well in school. I've worked great internships. I worked a full-time job, but I also done the entrepreneurship uh, route. And I did all of these things to say that like, even if you're going, it might not lead to happiness. Cause I was, I was like really unhappy when I was still grinding out that full-time job. Right. Like, um, and I just want to, I just want to let them know. I was like, look, there are other paths out in life other than working the corporate route. Um, tell them about the importance of frugality, saving long-term planning, um, letting them know that entrepreneurship is a feasible hobby if they take the right steps to it, right? And just opening their minds because right now, a lot of the things that are taught are just very closed-minded. And that's how I look to drive impact uh, to my community, right? By doing these things, right? Things things that I never had for myself and I have to learn for myself. And that's what I want to be remembered for, right? When I pass away, I want to be remembered for impact and the, the impact I had on some of these, not, I know high school kids are also don't listen very much, but at least if I impact one, a class, like one, every class like that, that is, that means the world to me. And that's what I want to be remembered by. No, of course the, the ripple effect, you know, if you start with one, you know, it, it, it will, it will eventually expand. Yeah. But that, it's awesome. I, lo I love it. That you want to leave an impact you know, on people rather than, again, at the same time, you're looking to build your own portfolio and help the passive investors you know who are going to be investing and investing with you to earn you know money and you know which is a great way to be in i mean during these times uh, you know having another source of income just like investing passively in, in real estate deals is a great way to do so if you have available capital to do so but uh, mm -hmm. the fact that you want to leave a legacy of impacting people like providing them the right financial kind of mindset and literacy uh, it's an awesome thing because of course there's a big gap in, in a you know uh, educational system with that currently so that is Absolutely. awesome. I love it. I love it. So it's, it's been really cool to talk with you today, Austin. I mean, so many different creative strategies and tips and, you know, it's been, it's been a tremendous, uh, you know, amount of uh, knowledge coming from you, even though you're 25 years old. But I mean, those two years, 
you know, it seems like you put in a lot of effort, a lot of work, you know, into educating yourself. Well, even though it was just a couple of videos and, you know, a book that kind of give you an entry point into real estate. But I mean, you did a lot. You did a lot and you build a 20, 20 unit, you know, uh, uh, portfolio, you know, in, in those couple of years, you know, very fast. And it's, it's been it's been really cool. So, you know, I wish you nothing, just the best of luck and, you know, uh, if, in everything which you do. Oh, I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Oh, that's no problem. Happy to. So listen, uh, guys and girls who are watching this episode, as always, I just want to ask you one thing. If you shared this episode with a friend of yours uh, who is always talking about real estate investing but never pulls a trigger, uh, this episode is definitely going to be a great for them because, again, of those creative strategies, tips, tricks, you know, uh, inspiration at the same time. So I think it will give a good kind of starting point for those uh, for, for your friend to, to start his own or her own personal real estate business. So again, Austin, I appreciate you joining me today. It's been a really great pleasure and fun talking with you today. And as always, I will see you on the next episode. Thanks for watching.